0: Good morning, church family. Good morning. One of the things that I learned as a parent, and not until I became a parent, is how many times uh, my children miss out on blessings they weren't even aware of. So many times my wife Caitlin and I are preparing a blessing for our kids. Maybe it's a special snack or an activity, or we're going to let them watch a, a show on TV for a few minutes. And we're preparing to bless them, and then... Here comes the disobedience. Here comes the yelling, the screaming, the she took my toy. And instead of getting the special snack or the new coloring book or whatever it is, now we have to sit down and have some discipline, have some punishment. And that reward that was sitting on the counter waiting for them is now delayed a little longer. They didn't eat their dinner, so now the dessert, well, we'll put it back in the fridge and it'll come back tomorrow if they eat their food that day. And over and over again, the the blessings that should have been theirs are taken from them without even hardly them realizing it. And and when you're a kid, you know, all you see is my my sibling took my toy and I'm going to fight till I get it, or I don't want to eat my vegetables. But now being a parent and on the other side, I realize there's so many good things. My parents wanted to bless me. What did I accidentally cost myself? And as I have to discipline my children, I have to look at my own heart and say, "Is, is this how God sees me? Is my sin, is my kicking and screaming and demanding my way keeping me from the ordinary blessings of God? Thankfully, God is a very good Father, and a very kind Father. And He doesn't throw our blessings away every time we sin and instead very often you know, defers those blessings and will wait on those blessings. So if we're not ready for something, He may withhold it for a season but then give it to us later. But The wonderful thing about God is He never takes away the things that we need. I never will punish my children by depriving them of food or clothing or shelter. That would be a cruelty. And God is like that too. He he does not take away the cross from us. The cross is always there. The cross is always enough for us. The blessings are new. The mercies are new every morning. And oftentimes, the blessings we missed out on most are because we didn't stay at the cross a little longer. He gives us repentance, forgiveness, and embrace with Him. Full access in prayer. And the reason we miss the blessings is because we didn't stay there and claim them. We didn't stay there and pray longer. We didn't stay there and dig into the Word. And so I have to ask myself is my sin holding me back from receiving good things that God is intending for me? This morning we, we come to our text, Genesis 42. This will be a very sorrowful text. This is a very painful text in the Bible. Uh, you'll, you might notice in the bullets, and I marked this as a part one, that's because this text is the beginning of a story that's going to be continued into chapter 43 next week. Uh, but this, this section is particularly sad, particularly disappointing, as you'll see as we go through. Um, so if this sermon feels a little bit heavy, a little bit uh, discouraging, well, that's, that's because where this is where the text is this morning. And as we, as we preach through the Bible, as we deal honestly with the Bible, it's so easy for us to want to just run ahead. You know, let's, let's get to the good part. Let's get to grace. Let's get to the gospel. But I, I think there's a powerful lesson in, in this painful text. So I want us to see that this morning and see what God is teaching us in, in the painful sections of Scripture. As And The more I unpack this passage, the more I begin to see the brokenness. So look with me, if you would, at our text Genesis 42, verses 1 through 38. If you remember last week, the famine has come, and all of the land is without food. Starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come up to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who had come for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. "'Where do you come from?' he said." They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We are your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, "It It is as I say to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether this is true of you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies." But he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and I will let you live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and we did not listen, this is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And When he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before his eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkeys fodder at the lodging place, he saw the money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Then they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan. They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us as spies of the land. But we, we, saw, we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the land youngest is in this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for your famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brothers to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come upon me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This morning, I want us to see from this text that sin costs us God's blessing. The effect of sin is not just general bad things in the world. It's not just judgment day at the end of time. But sin has very real and palpable effects on their family. We'll take this chapter in three sections. First, we'll look at verses 1 through 13 and see the new status quo. What is is the lay of the land? How have things changed? It's been 20 years now since we've seen these brothers. What's, What's the circumstances? Then I want to look at verses 14 through 25, and we'll see these tests. Joseph is beginning again to test his brothers. And thankfully, verses 26 through 38, we'll see the test results. So you're not going to have to wait a week for your test results. This is a, a really a quick test. So we'll get the test, and then we'll get the test results right after. All right. But let's look first at the new status quo, the first 13 verses. The first thing we see here in verse 1 is that the brothers and Jacob are running out of food. Think about it, they have a large flock, they need a lot of grain to keep their flock alive, and they're eating, their, they're eating some of their flock maybe and some of the grain, and they're running out of food. The famine has hit all of Canaan. And it's interesting, the brothers are kind of giving each other side eye, and they're like, all right, there's food in Egypt, but that's where our brother went when we sold him, and we kind of got a bad feeling about Egypt, and I don't really want to go to Egypt. Do you want to go to Egypt? No, I don't want to go to Egypt. So they're, they're like not really into this idea about going to Egypt, and their dad's like, stop it! We are going to die here. Don't kill me. Get the money, go to Egypt, buy food, and stop goofing off. You know, their dad tells them to, to, get, to get moving. So they, they all go. But you'll notice he keeps Benjamin back. Benjamin stays home. And it's a little ambiguous, but I think it's fair to say that he doesn't trust Benjamin on the trip. He doesn't trust Benjamin with his own brothers, and he doesn't trust Benjamin in Egypt. Benjamin has become someone he clings to. Benjamin doesn't leave his sight. He has to have Benjamin. He only had two daughters, two sons by his favorite wife. He had Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph's dead, and he's not losing Benjamin. And so he clings tightly to Benjamin. He says, I don't trust the brothers. I don't trust the road. I don't trust Egypt. Benjamin stays here. You ten, you guys are the expendable brothers. If I lose some of you, there's some more of you left. You guys are expendables. You guys go on, and you know if whoever makes it back makes it back with food. But Benjamin, i got to protect. And sadly, what we're seeing here is that 20 years later, nothing's changed. The favoritism that has infected their family now for generations has gotten worse. Here he is not just, you know, favoring one son by giving him a nicer piece of clothing, but he says, this is the son I protect. You are the sons that I send into danger. And he is, he's become so egregious in his favoritism that he's willing to, like, let 10 kids die if one kid lives. He doesn't care about these other ten sons. And they feel it and they resent it. And so their family has become even more dysfunctional as time has gone on. But so the ten brothers, wanting to not starve to death, they go to Egypt. And I want you to kind of imagine the scene. You know, you arrive in Egypt. You're in a foreign land here. There's a bunch of other Canaanites. Everybody from every other town has also been hungry. So they all form their queue, right? They're all in the nice line. And the Canaanites in front of you, they step forward, they pay their gold, they get their grain and go. And then you step forward in the queue and the guys in front of you pay their gold, get their grain and they go. Then you step forward and then they do their big bow, their heads touch the ground, they're bowing before this man. All right, here's our gold, can we have our grain and go? And he takes a disliking to them. And suddenly he's got questions for them. And suddenly he's calling them a spy. But on the other side, here we see Joseph. He's watching all these Canaanites coming flooding in. And you know he's wondering, will my family show up today? Have they run out of food yet? Are they coming to beg for me? And he sees the ten men come in, bow their heads on the floor. And several thoughts go through his mind. Those are my brothers. I haven't seen them in 20 years, but those are my brothers. I know these guys. And they are bowing down just as God promised me. God promised me that my brothers would bow down to me, and here they are bowing down to me. God is good. God is faithful. God has helped me to reach this position in Egypt, and now my brothers are bowing down and fulfilling God's promise. Everything God said is true. But wait a second. Joseph can count. He's been counting grain now for seven years. There are ten brothers. How many brothers are there supposed to be? Eleven. eleven. So he goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Where is brother eleven? Eleven. Which brother's missing? Benjamin. Benjamin is his only full brother. These are all half-brothers, they had a different mother. But the brother who shares his mother is gone. And he w- w- the main reason he was ki- going to be killed and then sold into slavery is because of who his mother was. So the brother with the same mother as him is the brother that's missing. And so the next thought in his head is did my brothers kill Benjamin too? What happened to Benjamin? What did these guys do? And so he's got to now figure out, is Benjamin still alive? They murdered me by sending me to Egypt. And In their mind, I'm dead. and I'm sure my dad thinks I'm dead. What happened to Benjamin? So he has this question now in his head. So he accuses them of being spies. And, and listen to what they say in verse 11. On their accusation. Oop. Turn the wrong page here. Verse 11. They say, We are sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. They are lying to his face. If you remember what happened back in uh, chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, in revenge, tricked and murdered an entire town of people. These two brothers murdered an entire village while they were in the pains of circumcision. They they tricked them. they took advantage of them, and then all ten brothers ran in and looted the town. They embarrassed their dad by doing this. These are not honest men. They are not good, sweet people, and yet they are looking him in the eye and saying, we're honest people, we're good people. And not to mention, these are the same people who sold him out 20 years ago. He knows they're not good, sweet, honest people, and yet they're gonna lie to his face and pretend that they've never done anything wrong. Now, I wanna notice this, this accusation of spy. He repeats it a few times. When we hear the word spy, we think government spy, corporate spy, movie spy. It's not what he's talking about. Canaan is not a nation so much as it is just a collection of people and tribes and you know, heads of households. Egypt is not afraid of Canaan. There's no, like, or there's no nation of Canaan that's going to come attack Egypt. He's not saying you're a spy for a rival nation. What he is saying is you've come to see the nakedness of the land. You hear that phrase? The nakedness of the land. What that implies, you have come as bandits. You've come as thieves. you are come looking for what you can take. You are the kind of men who take advantage of people. You're looking for what you can swindle, what's not being watched, what can be shoved in your pockets, and people you can hurt. You are the kind of people who hurt other people. And if you remember what they did to him, they stripped his garment and threw him in a pit when he was alone. They saw his nakedness when they ripped that robe off of him all those years ago. They are spies. They are the kind of men who strip their brother naked and throw him in a pit. They are the kind of men who look for advantage and say, hey, instead of just killing him, we can make a quick buck and sell him to the Ishmaelites or to the Amalekites who are taking him to slavery. They are these kind of men. They are the men who would sell their brother out. And that's what he's accusing him of. He couches it in this language of, you're spying out the land. But what he's really saying is, you're the kind of guys who would strip me naked and throw me in a pit and take advantage of me when I'm all alone. And he's right. He knows what kind of men they are. And now the question in his head is, have they changed? Because they've come and now said, oh, we are honest men. We would never do that to anybody. And so he accuses them, you're looking for people to take advantage of. And they say, no, of course not. And they mention they happen to have one more brother back home. And so we come to the set of tests. Joseph now has to test them. You're saying to me you're honest. But 20 years ago, you were not honest with me. And I've seen what else you've done. And I know what kind of guys you were. Have you changed? And so he begins to test them. The first test is pretty simple. He locks them all up and says, all right, you're telling me you're good guys and that you have one brother. Let's see if your word is even valid. Go get your brother, bring him here, and that will prove to me that you're honest at least, that at least you're telling the truth. Now, of course, the main reason that Joseph wants this to happen is because he's desperate to see his brother again. He wants nothing more than to see Benjamin and know that Benjamin's alive. But then the test fails. You notice this? He puts him in prison for three days and no one budges. All ten of them are sitting there, and not one of them is willing to go home and face Dad. Not one of them wants to turn around and go back and say, Hey, Dad, the other nine brothers are all in prison, and the the prison guy says that unless you bring Benjamin, he's not letting anybody go. Nobody's going to say that to Dad. They're like, Yep, if I go home and I tell Dad that, we're the the disposable brothers, the expendable brothers. He's just going to turn on us and say, No. And then all of us are going to be stuck in prison again and with no food. So they just sit like, well, we might as well just sit in prison because we're not facing dad. And, and they, st- they stay and they sit and this test fails. And unfortunately, Joseph now has to conclude that one of two things is true. Either Benjamin is dead or incapacitated to a state that he can't travel. And the brothers don't want to go because they know that there's no Benjamin to bring. Or that relationship has real, gotten really bad. That the relationship between the father and the sons has gotten so bad that there's nothing that they can say to get, that one of them could say to get dad to come and and bring Benjamin. And so three days pass. And I think this is important. Look Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph says to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. He comes to them after three days. They fail his test. Are you honest men? Can I trust you? Can I reveal myself to you? Answer is no. They are not honest men. They have never rebuilt the relationship with their father, and they don't even know if Ben is alive, Benjamin's alive or not. But he decides to give them another chance. Joseph does not owe them another chance. Think about this. There are alternatives here. He knows where his dad lives, roughly. Leave your brothers in prison, get a whole bunch of food in a, an, an Egyptian like group. You can get an entire he's he's second-in-command of Egypt. He can get an entire like Traveling caravan filled with food and go find his father and see if his father's okay and check on Benjamin himself or to send Egyptians to go do it for him. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he go check on his father by himself? He has the ability now. And yes, he's very busy in his job, but I'm sure there's somebody else who can sell grain for a few days while he goes and checks on his father. But instead, he deliberately gives these unworthy brothers of his another chance. And I think it's important he recognizes. He doesn't just want to be reunited with dad and Benjamin. He wants to be reunited with all of his brothers. He wants his family put back together again. He wants these old wounds that have festered for decades now to be healed. And it's important for Joseph that his ten brothers are there too. Because if you remember from last week, he named his oldest son Manasseh. He's forgiven them. He saw why God allowed what happened to happen. He recognizes that God has placed him uniquely to save all of Egypt and all of Canaan and all the surrounding lands from this horrible famine. And he knows there's six more years of famine coming. They're not going to be able to wait this out. They're going to try later, but they're not going to be able to wait this famine out. And so he recognizes that he needs to restore his brothers, that he needs to restore his family. And so he gives them another chance. And so for this test, he changes the rules a little bit for him. He says, I, I, I trust God, I'm going to change the rules. I will only keep one brother back, and I'll send the rest of you. Maybe nine of you can convince dad to send Benjamin to rescue the, la- the tenth brother. And, and think about what he's doing here by holding one brother back. He knows these are the kind of brothers who would sell out one of their own. They sold him out. And now he's saying, can you rally together together Rally with Benjamin, your other brother, to come save Simeon. And he picks Simeon. And I think he picked Simeon on purpose. He probably made it seem a little bit random, but I, I, he picked Simeon. Why? Because Simeon is the violent one. He's the crazy brother. You know what I'm talking about. But for Sim, Simeon was the one who led that, that, that massacring of that town. Simeon and Levi were the ones who kind of instigated. Simeon is the instigator. He's the troublemaker. He's the one who's embarrassed dad the most. He's the one that dad is most likely to say, I'm giving up on that son. That's the son I like least. And so he picks the hardest to rescue son and puts the troublemaker son in prison and sends the other brothers back. And so so the troublemaking sibling is now in prison. And, you know, Simeon probably does deserve some jail time. But the brothers now have to go back, and it's going to be up to them. Are you the kind of brothers who will rescue your brother? Are you going to do whatever it takes to rescue a brother? Because in the past, you were the kind of people who would sell out, a bro- sell out your brother. Now the question is, will you rescue your brother? Have you changed? You were going this way and selling it out and being opportunist. Will you band together? Will you unite with Benjamin on a rescue mission to rescue Simeon? Will you do it? And so that's the question he's asking here. But then he's going to up the stakes, and he puts the money back in their sacks. Why does he put the money back in their sacks? Have you thought about that? Well, have you, have you ever had a card accidentally declined or almost left a restaurant without paying? That's really embarrassing, isn't it? Any, anybody enjoy that awkward conversation of, oops, I thought I paid already. It's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. It is not a fun time. He makes things awkward on purpose for them. And he's doing this on purpose. They just told him to his face. They looked him in the eyes and said, we are honest men. But he watched them loot that city and steal all that stuff way back yet, way back when he was a kid. So now he wants to see, all right, you're the kind of guys who sell your brother out. Will you come rescue your brother? You're the kind of guys that will steal from others. Will you bring the money back instead of stealing? Will you be the guy to return the money? Are you the honest men that you say you are? And these are are the things he needs to see. Have they actually changed? Because if they've changed, he can reveal who he is. He can finally say, I'm your brother Joseph. I'm so glad God has worked in your life. God has worked in my life to save you. We're going to see that sweet reunion here in a few chapters. But he's not there yet. They're not ready yet. But he wants to test them and see if they are. Are the brothers ready for him to reveal himself to them? Have they actually changed? Because if he just comes out and says, I'm Joseph, I have a whole like, honor guard of Egyptians with swords, you better apologize to me right now or the swords are coming out. He's not going to get a real apology. He wants to see, is their repentance going to be genuine? Are they going to have godly sorrow? And listen to how they talk about what happened. I think verse 21 and 22 are very critical to understanding this passage. Listen to them again. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begs us and we did not listen. This is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for our blood. It's been 20 years. And when things go wrong, their first thought is, oh, the curse is finally hitting us, isn't it? They have been waiting their whole life for the curse to fall upon their heads. And now, now the shoe is finally dropped. Now the curse is finally hit. And you're like, okay, this is how God's going to punish us. And, and I think this curse very likely could be referring back to Genesis 4, verses 10. You see, when Cain murdered his brother, the first brother murder, God cursed him and cursed the ground because of him. And there was a curse because he murdered his brother. These ten guys conspired to murder their brother, and they've been waiting for that curse to hit them. They, as a family, as brothers, have allied themselves, not with the line of Seth, not with the line of promise, not with the line of of the coming Jesus, but instead they have allied themselves with the line of Cain, the line of the serpent, the line of the brother murderers. They have put themselves under God's curse, and they have been waiting I think it's probably safe to say that for the last 20 years, every time anything went wrong, anytime a sheep went missing, a crop failed, their thought was, oh no, is this the curse going to hit us? Because we brought a curse on ourselves when we killed our brother. Has, Has Joseph died in Egypt and his death is on our hands now, and now we're cursed? That's what they're thinking here. And I think it's fascinating that when they mention it to each other, they just don't say, oh, we sold our brother out. But did you hear the way they described it? they're describing the trauma of the event. They're describing how their their brother begged and pleaded as they stripped him naked. He said, no, don't do this, as they threw him in the pit. And then they took a lunch break and waited and decided if they really wanted to murder him or sell him. This wasn't a snap decision. They didn't lose their temper and say something or do something in a moment and then regret it later. This was a drawn out process. And they still have his voice ringing in their ears of him begging them and pleading with them. Don't beat me and strip me naked and mock me and throw me in a pit and then sell me into slavery, never to be seen again. You're killing me. Don't kill your own brother. And they remember his voice 20 years later in their ears. And yet are still unable to recognize it's the same voice that's calling them a spy. But they, they, they hearken back vis, 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 visibly and, and recognize what they actually did. But it begs the question, are they sorry for the curse? Are they sorry for the consequences? Or are they sorry for what they actually did? Are they sorry for their sins? Are they sorry that their sins had a consequence? And this is now what Joseph has to know. Because Joseph has had time to process this. He's he's had time to recognize why God allowed this to happen. But they haven't. They have not processed through what they did. They are still wrestling and grappling with how horrible they were to their own brother. And so, so when things go wrong in their business transaction, they say, yep, we deserve this. We recognize this curse. But are they sorry? And this question is what Joseph is going to seek to answer. And I think here we can begin to draw out our application from this text. I think we can learn a lot from Joseph in terms of how do you deal with sin in the lives of people who have sinned against you, especially people who have sinned against you greatly. I I like to hope not many, many people in this room have had somebody in your own family try to murder you before. But, you know, we've all had people that we love and care about who've hurt us deeply, who've done things that we've said were unspeakable, who've crossed lines, and how do you deal and grapple with close friends, family members, even church members who have hurt you deeply? How, how do you look and say, you have, you have done something I thought you would never do. You have said things you would never, I thought you would never say. How do I restore this relationship? And I think, I think Joseph can give us some wisdom on this in the way that he pursues reconciliation. And, and remember what I said. You know, he gives them a the simple test. Okay, go get Benjamin and prove to me that you're actually telling the truth. And they fail the test. And he doesn't give up on them. And he's like, all right, let's try again. Let's try this thing again. Let's see if there's an opportunity for you to be honest men. And this reminds me so much of Matthew 18, 21 through 22. The disciples are asking Jesus about the nature of forgiveness. You may know this passage. Peter says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then here Jesus says, You know, you're not called to forgive them seven times, and then after seven times, you can write them out of your life. You were called to forgive them seven times 70 is how some translations take it, or 77. Either way, a completeness. Remember, seven is that completeness number. You were called to completely forgive them, you're called to keep forgiving. After the world says, write that person off, cut them out of your life, give up on them, they're not worth it, cut them out, you're called to not give up on them. Why? Because Jesus doesn't cut us off. He doesn't give up on us. And as Jesus goes to the cross and doesn't give up on us, so we are called to not give up on others. And so we are called to continue to forgive. So what does this look like practically? I want to give us a few things to wrestle with here. Because what it doesn't mean is that we let people walk on us. Forgiving somebody does not mean that they're allowed to continue to sin against you and to act as they always have. It doesn't mean you turn a blind eye and pretend it didn't happen. Jacob's sin here is that he's pretending like his sons are okay and he's just never going to deal with them and parent them. We're not called to just turn a blind eye to sin. This also doesn't mean we cover up sin. You know, if you've got a relative who's committing some kind of crime, that doesn't mean you go and help them hide the crime and conceal the evidence. We don't help them. We're not complicit in their sins. And it also means we don't try to erase the consequences of other people's sins. If they have sinned, they must endure the consequences of their sin. We can walk with them through those consequences, but we don't try to hide them. This is especially hard you know, as a parent because when, you're, when your kids have sinned, especially as they get older, it's easy to want to just like, all right, I'm going to pay for it. I'll take care of it. I'll make sure there's no consequences. But no, we, we, we help them wrestle with what it means that your sin costs something. And so what it means, what forgiveness means for someone who has sinned against us is this. We recognize this simple truth that God and God alone can change unchangeable people. And I think this is the, where we have to start because we have to live in light of the fact that God changes the unchangeable. It's the theme of so much of the Bible. Look at the men who wrote the Bible. Moses was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. David murdered people too. You've got so many murderers writing the Bible. Why? Because God changed their hearts. He took angry, bitter, mean-spirited men and made them men of God. God takes people who are able to commit sin and hurt their families and hurt people around them and turns them into his chosen instruments. And and throughout the Bible, there's this resonance of God changing unchangeable people. That's what we believe. And so when we forgive somebody, we recognize that God can change them. Not that they're going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they're going to try harder next time for reals, these guys, and and they're going to make it happen. No, God is going to do the changing. And so that means we pray and we say, God, I recognize that my brother, my sister, my dad, my father, my uncle, my friend, my church member has sinned against me. I want you to change them. I need you to change them. But I know that you need to do the changing, not them, because they can't do it by themselves and I can't do it for them. And so we trust God and we trust God's timing. And trusting God's timing often requires patience. God's timing isn't always, you know, five minutes from now, you know, as soon as you're done praying, all right, God's going to give it to you. They're going to miraculously turn into a new person. And so we're called to keep praying and to keep waiting for God's time for the change. But as we're waiting, like Joseph, we provide opportunity for restoration. So what does this look like? I think there's, we have to think in terms of biblical categories Are they repentant or are they unrepentant? In the case of unrepentant sin, we have a strong parallel in Matthew 18 as the Bible talks about uh, church discipline. When someone is unrepentant in a church situation, you are to go to them first by yourself and then with two witnesses over and over, giving them opportunity to assess the truth, to see if the sin really is sin, and to see and plead with them to be repentant. And only when the sin has repeatedly been addressed and only when the sin has been repeatedly unrepented of, there is no change is that person removed from the church. Is that separation enacted? So the separation comes after unrepentant sin. And where there is unrepentant sin, yes, we are called to distance themselves. If your, your relative is a bank robber and they refuse to stop robbing banks... You are welcome to separate yourself and say, I am not going to go with you and rob banks. I'm not going to live with you, and I'm not going to pretend that it's okay to rob banks. I'm calling the police. You are are in your right to distance yourself from that person. If, If a relative is abusive, if a relative is manipulative and is hurting you and refuses to acknowledge their sin, you are in your right to separate yourself. You are in your right to bring the church in. You are in your right to call the cops if you need to call the cops. We have the right and we should, it is good for us to separate ourselves from unrepentant sin. But where there is repentance, we should begin to look for godly sorrow. Is it real repentance? This is what Joseph is doing in our text. Yeah, you're sorry that bad stuff has happened. Yeah, you got caught robbing a bank, so you're sorry you got caught by the cops. But is there real sorrow? What does godly sorrow look like? Simply, it looks like this. If someone has godly sorrow, they hate the sin, and they're fleeing it, and they love the cross, and they're running toward it. And that will mean life change. There will be a difference in their life. This doesn't mean that they're going to turn into a perfect person suddenly. This doesn't mean they're going to backslide a few times. What this does mean is that they hate what they used to be and they want to be something else. And they're running towards God. And they're saying, no, I don't want to be what I was in my past. I don't want to be like that anymore. And so they fight and they flee sin. And where they flee sin, restoration can begin to happen. That's what Joseph's looking for in these tests. You hear it. You were the kind of man Who sold out a brother? Will you rally together to be the rescuer of your brother? Has the brotherly love returned to our family yet? And when it does, he can finally begin the restoration process. You're the kind of men who would steal and rob and cheat. Will you give the money back? Will you deal honestly with other people and not try to rip people off? When that happens, I'll know you've changed. I know that you'll hate sin and you're running from your sin. And he's looking, are you changed? Has God changed you? Or do I need to keep praying and testing you until that happens? And so the tests are issued. And the men leave. Simeon is locked up. So let's look now at verses 26 through 38 and see what the test results are. Verse 28. Before they even get home, they realize that they have some of the money. What's their response? Verse 28 here is their response, oh, we got to run back to Egypt. we got to go and make things right. We're going to make sure we get a receipt this time. We're going to get it in writing. We paid you. Here's the money. We didn't take money. We are honest men. Did they bring the money back? Somebody? No. What do they do instead? They say, how could God do this to us? What is it this that God has done to us? They're blaming God. God, how could you make it awkward for us? You know, we're running away and cowering. How could you make that an awkward process? They're, they're looking at God and they're blaming God. And then instead of going back and being the honest men they promised they were, they swore they were, well, let's just go home and let dad figure it out. You know, dad Dad's told us to come home with the grain. Let's just go home and deal with that. So they, they go home to their father. They open their sacks and realize they have all this money. And then they have to explain to their father what happened to Simeon. Because he recognizes that only nine boys came back and not the ten that he sent. And so, we begin to see, verse 36, that things have not changed. Listen to 36. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. Do you hear what he's saying here? I am going to just count. I am writing my own son off as dead. Simeon is dead to me. We're not going back. We're not going to rescue him because you're, you're definitely not touching my Benjamin. Simeon, might as well consider him dead. We're not going to touch that. He has written his own son off as dead. To him, Simeon is dead now. And his brothers are standing there like, but, but all we need is Benjamin and we can go rescue him. He says, no, sit down. We're at an end of discussion. We're not talking about this. Your brother is dead. Pretend he's dead. Don't bring it up again. He is silencing them and demanding that they treat their own brother as dead. Think about what happened earlier in the book here when Lot was captured. Abraham got word that Lot was captured. Abraham and Lot got along okay, but they weren't great friends. Their servants fought a lot. He hears Lot's captured. Do you know what he does? My kinsman Lot is captured. He gets every able-bodied man that he can find. He raises an army. He storms after and says, I am not coming back until I've retrieved my kinsman. He fought for Lot. He said, I'm not going to rest until Lot is returned. And he goes after Lot. And yet here we see Jacob generations later, the favoritism having just rotted their family. Simeon's dead to me. I'm not even touching that. And fathers, I think there's a lesson specifically here. Husbands, men, look at how he's engaging his family. He demands of his family, pretend your brother is dead. We are not dealing with the sin in my own heart. We're not dealing with the favoritism. We're not dealing with the fact that one of our brothers is in trouble. We're going to pretend everything's all right. Now sit down and eat your bread. And he has this this spirit of we are not going to address sin in this household and it's rotting them out. It's killing them. And and as a a father and a husband and a man, I have to ask myself, I I have to say, is this the kind of man that I am? Is there any any area of my life where I do not allow my wife to speak into my life or my kids to speak up? Are there things I demand of my family and say, no, we're not going to talk about that sin? Am I going to grumble and grit my teeth and act angry to get her to be quiet? Am I a loving husband who says, I'm willing to talk about the deep sins in my life. I'm willing to talk about family sin, generational sin. Are we going to pour in and put every sin to death so that we can live in the full blessing of God? Or am I going to try to cover stuff up and cover over stuff and pretend the empty chair is not there just to make things a little bit easier for me and everybody else can tiptoe around me? And, And there's such a powerful picture here of what fatherhood and husbandhood should not look like. Brothers and brothers, let it not be said of us. And it's, it's just so indicting here to see the way that he just covers stuff up. And the tests fail. The tests fail. There were two tests. Will you rally together and rescue your brother? Will you bring back the money and be honest men? And both tests fail, dramatically fail. They could have brought the money back before they even got back to debt, and they didn't even do that. And then dad shuts everything down. Simeon's dead. We're not going to even try. And the tests fail. Joseph said, can you prove to me? Please prove to me that you're good men. I want this family to be reunited. Joseph is even now preparing the land of Goshen. The most beautiful area of Egypt is going to be set aside so that when he reunites his family that they can have the most beautiful land. He's got wealth beyond what they can imagine. Food to last more than the the, the entire seven-year famine. Everything they need, all of these blessings are in Egypt, waiting for them. Jacob wants nothing more than to see his long-dead son. And yet his own stubbornness, his own anger, his refusal to deal with his own sin and his son's sin is keeping him from seeing his son. Do you, you realize the madness? If he would just acknowledge the sin in their family... They would be closer to being reunited. We're going to see in the next chapter here that one of the sons is going to make a comment that they could have traveled twice in the time before they travel again. They're going to wait till they're starving. They're rationing their bread. So think about what sin has cost their family. They're literally sitting with two empty chairs, pretending there's not two empty chairs. They're eating half a loaf of bread instead of a full loaf of bread. Hoping that the famine will end and that they can go back to pretending that the status quo is okay. They're trying to outlast the consequences of sin instead of dealing with their sin. And so they're eating and living on a a barely filled belly and stretching that grain out as long as they can. Because they'd rather do that than than talk about what's actually going on in their hearts. They've got a brother's who do not have brotherly bonds, a father who doesn't love his children. Simeon is sitting in prison going, oh, they're not coming back, are they? I'm in here forever. I deserve to be in prison forever, but I kind of hope that my 11 other brothers would have cared about me enough to try to rescue me. And no rescue's coming for Simeon, so it seems for him. He sits in prison for quite a while while they ration the bread and, and take their time. And Joseph, heartbroken, can you imagine Joseph in his, his position? He put the money in their sacks. He, he sent them off to bring Benjamin. He's kept sending back. And he's every day praying and waiting every day. God, please let my brothers return with Benjamin. Please let them be honest. Please let me be reunited. You shouldn't miss it. But every time he's going to talk to these, these men, this chapter, the next chapter, the following chapter, every single conversation starts with, is your dad alive? Is dad still alive? He is desperate to reunite with his father before his father passes away. But he can't do that until he's restored to his brothers. And he recognizes that. And so he's begging God, God, do not let my dad die until I can be restored to him. Do not let my father pass away. Please let Benjamin still be alive. And so he's praying why they eat half a loaf of bread and pretend that the empty chairs are not there. And so we see sin wreaking havoc on their family when it doesn't even need to be. And their their stubbornness and their refusal to address it has cost their family so dearly. And so when we we wrestle with sin in our own lives, when we wrestle with sin in our family's lives, we need to ask the question, is is sin holding us back? Is sin causing our family undue suffering? Is the pretending and the games and, and the things we don't talk about doing things to our family? And this is, you know, if you're married, this is a conversation to have with your spouse. What is it that I'm not opening up to you about? What is it that we're doing as a couple or as a family or as a larger family? What is is it that's going on in our lives that's keeping us from experiencing the full blessing of God? And we see here the effects. And it's easy to see it in their lives, especially knowing that the story is going to have a conclusion. It's often very hard to see it in our own lives. And I encourage you. Be honest with your own heart. Be honest with what's going on. Be honest with things that you may have left buried for 20 years. For 20 years, this sin has been left unaddressed. And it has festered and festered and gotten so much worse. Now, this, this failure, this test failure, is seen again in foreshadowing the New Testament. Just as every other chapter is foreshadowed and we've gone to the New Testament. I, I want you to see the foreshadowing as well this morning. In, in 2 Timothy 4, 9-18... through 18, Paul is writing about what he's experienced and he had had all of these people with him on his missionary journey. Listen to verses 14 through 18. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for the strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that though my message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. By who? By his friends? No, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And so in the New Testament, again we see men failing, friends deserting, family members turning. And yet God is faithful when it seems that the tests fail, that people fail. If you remember earlier, we read Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Jesus is in the garden as he's praying, begs his 12 disciples to pray for him. And it's worth noting that in the New Testament, you don't hear Jesus say, please pray for me very often. And yet he says to them, he's been saying, my hour is not yet come, his entire ministry. And yet he takes them to the garden. He says, my hour is about to happen. Pray for me. This is serious. This is a change. Jesus has never said these words before in this way. And yet... The disciples pass out. They're too tired. And they go to sleep instead of praying. And here Jesus is bleeding because he's so, bleeding tears of blood because he's so distraught over what's coming. He knows the cross is about to happen. And three times he turns around and his disciples have passed out again. They fail him over and over again. In that one minute where all he wants is his friends to just be there for him, they're not there for him. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever been abandoned or neglected or mistreated or betrayed by friends, Jesus knows what it feels like. It happened to him right as he was going to the cross. The people he wanted to trust most were not there for them. And worse, after this passage, he goes to the cross, the the guards come, his disciples flee. Imagine for for a minute with me his friends wouldn't even sit and pray for one hour, they fled at the sight of the guards. And now here he is on trial. And whose voice does he hear? Peter, the one who said he would fight to the death alongside of him. Peter cursing his name, saying, I do not know that man, blaspheming and cursing him. And Jesus looks at Peter. And, and, and in that moment, Jesus knows he's still going to die for Peter. He's still going to die for every single one of his ten disciples who were hiding. Just the other ten are all hiding and he's going to die for them too. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You guys couldn't pray for an hour. Peter's denying me. Forget this. I'm not going to the cross. I'm ascending right now. You guys are on your own. He doesn't give up on them. Friends, he doesn't give up on us either. And this is our hope, that Jesus can look the man who's cursing him in the eye and say, I'm dying for you anyways. I am making you my child anyways. You may curse me while I wanted you to help me. While you should be standing up and saying, that's my Jesus. You're cussing my own, my name. And he dies for Peter anyways. That's our Jesus, friends. He dies for us. He redeems and restores his people even when they don't deserve it. And so Joseph sees his brothers, the brothers who tried to murder him, the brothers who stripped him naked and threw him in a pit and sold him into into Egypt. And like Jesus, he chooses to forgive them. He chooses to see them restored. He chooses to give them tests He's not going to walk around them and go find his father himself. He's not going to be like, all right, you guys are a bunch of screw-ups. I'm going to go check on dad. I don't need you guys anymore. I know dad doesn't like you guys anyways. But no, he restores his brothers when they don't deserve it. Just as Jesus restores us when we don't deserve it. And so again, Joseph is portraying what Jesus is going to do for us. He is going to restore people who do not deserve to be restored. But as we close out our passage this, this morning, I want to return to verse 38 one more time. Listen to what Jacob said. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. My son Joseph is dead. That's not true. He's wrong. And here he's wrong, and here's where our hope lies. We have a sad, tragic past. Jacob has issued test after test after test, failure after failure after failure, failure, unworthiness after unworthiness, unchanged stubbornness, broken family dynamics. No hope at all for redemption. They're never going to go back. They're never going to save Simeon. They're never going to find the land of Goshen and Joseph. But he says the reason is because Joseph is dead. But Joseph is not dead. He's wrong. And God, as he rations his food, is going to prolong that famine as long as possible. Seven years of famine. Joseph's not going to be able to make that grain last. And his belly, next week, next chapter, is going to cause him to finally say, All right, I guess I have to give up Benjamin. I guess this is going to be taken away from me. And and think about what Benjamin represents to Jacob. He should just be his son, one son in 12. But instead, he has set his own son up as an idol. His hope is that when he dies, Benjamin inherits everything. That is his hope. That is what he is worshiping. Everything he says is not God will provide for us. It's Benjamin must be safe. That is his God. That is what he worships. He's worshiping a family member. And so God knows that the best thing to happen to Jacob is for his idol to be ripped out of his hands. So he's going to starve Jacob. The grain will dry up, will run out. They're going to eat it and ration it as slowly as possible, but it will run out. So that Jacob will have to give up his idol. Jacob is going to have to learn to trust in the God that he trusted when he was a young man. He is going to have to learn and have a reckoning with God and say, God, I am trusting my son Benjamin to the sons that I did not raise well. And I I am praying and I am hoping every day that you will keep him safe. God is going to make Jacob learn to trust him again. He is not going to leave Jacob as a poor father. He is going to restore Jacob as a father By making him give up the son that he's turned into an idol, and he's gonna help these brothers, he's going to restore them by sending them back, and we'll we'll see what happens to them. But in the in the meantime, they're they're rationing their food and they're they're making us ask this question of what what will become of them? What will happen to these men who have failed the test? Will, will, will there be re- restoration? And thankfully the Bible does not end here at 42. This would be a terrible place for the story to end. So, I, uh, you know, like last week, read ahead. You know, come next week. We'll, we'll see the story continue, that God is not done with his family. But it, at this point in the story, this is very much a low point, a very sad point, as, as their family dynamics on full display, the full brokenness of their generational sin has kind of reached its, its boiling point. And rip them away. And so, and so as we see what, what undealt with sin does to a family. Friends, let's ask ourselves this. Is there sin in our own lives that if undealt with will rip our family up like it ripped up Jacob's family? Let us put sin to death. Let us fight against every sin that would do this kind of thing to us. Let us be quick to forgive. Quick to open up. Quick to repent. To apologize. And to seek reconciliation when we're sinned against. It it is so vitally important that we seek to to live in ways that honor God, that we remember that it is our Jesus who went to the cross for us when we did not deserve it. And so we can forgive those in our lives who don't deserve it, even when they do grievous things, even when they leave us naked in a hole in the ground, even when they send us to our certain death, we can still forgive them as Joseph does. I I hope this chapter... As, it's, as painful as it is, has been an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we are not called to forgive because it's the right thing to do. That we're not called to forgive in order to earn your, your salvation. But, Father, we're called to forgive because we have been forgiven. Thank You, Lord, that You have forgiven us when we did not deserve it. Thank You, Lord, for not giving up on us. Thank You, Lord, that You did not give up on the family of Jacob. The, the nation of Israel will get a chance because you are good, not because they were worthy. Father, help us to deal honestly with our own hearts, with our own marriages, with our own families. God, Help us to deal honestly with our own church, Lord. Help us to seek to put to death sin wherever we see it. Help us to love you and trust you. Thank you for all the ways that you've been there for us. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.